now and open them to Philippians chapter 4. I suppose you've probably noticed in the past few weeks that I'm having a great deal of trouble closing out the book of Philippians. Uh, To me, this has been a very helpful book. I mean, if not for you, it has been for me. Because Philippians is a very personal book, Uh, there's a lot of great doctrine that we find in this book. But many times when we're studying the Word of God and we're looking at doctrine and going through, oh, even sometimes some difficult doctrines, we sort of get stuck in that and the Bible becomes somewhat impersonal to us. So we just open up the Bible and we start studying it and we want to know about this and that and we need an explanation and answer for all these different kinds of things. And really, a lot of times, we just don't let the Bible speak to us. Now, Philippians is one of those books that can settle us back down. And if we take it in the way that Paul wrote it, we see that it is very personal. It's a very tender expression of Paul's love for Christ and for these Philippian people. And I suppose we don't see it any more clearly as we do when we look at this 20th verse that we're studying tonight. Uh, Paul has just been speaking about contentment throughout this last chapter. Uh, He's talked about how God had so richly blessed him and allowed him to be a part of his kingdom and to have the opportunity to work for him. And he comes down through the fourth chapter and he just swells with gratitude as he begins to acknowledge the gifts of the Philippian people to his ministry. And he wants them to realize that this is part of God's plan for him and for them. This is the way that God supports the ministry, and God could do it through many different means. Uh, God could choose other ways to do it, and it will be done one way or another. But the thing to thank God about is when we have the opportunity to be used of Him. Uh, Just to know that God could have done it another way, but He has seen fit to use us in His service, that is really a great blessing. And for those who really know Christ and want to and do want to serve Him, serving the Lord never becomes a burden to us. And so we we love the Lord's work, and so we thank Him for the opportunity that we have to serve, and we also thank Him that He rewards us when we do serve Him. And you you really can't beat that. Uh, He rewards us, He gives us the opportunity, and gives us so many blessings for it. Well, Paul, as he uh, sat in a prison cell, he never thought that this is no way for a servant of God to be treated. I really shouldn't be treated this way. But rather, Paul just thanked the Lord that he had the opportunity to suffer affliction for the cause of Christ. And I believe that most of us, if not all of us, have a really long way to go before we ever come to that place. With the comfort and ease that we have in Christianity today, and really the lack of uh, true persecution as they had in those times, I think it's caused us to suffer somewhat in this intimate relationship that we have with God and to come to full dependence upon Him. But Paul, after thinking about these many different things and, and uh, thinking about how God that had saved him and, and what the Philippian people had done, he just really can't contain himself any longer. And so he comes down to this 20th verse of Philippians chapter 4, and he says, Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I mentioned in the last message that Paul was prone to do this. I mean, there are times when he's dealing with the deep doctrines of God's Word, and he's considering those thoughts about how God had saved him, and also thinking about how God's people supported him. And he just stops when he's writing some of his letters, and he just lets out a praise God and a thank you, Jesus. Now, he may not say it in exactly those words, but it comes out here, to God and our Father be glory 
forever and ever. Now this evening I want to talk to you some more about why we give glory to the Father. A few weeks ago I was looking at this verse and I was trying to think, well, what would I say about giving glory to God? And I began to think of it a little bit more, and I listed ten reasons why I think that we need to give glory to God. And there are many, many other reasons that I could have come up with, but I settled on ten particular reasons, and uh, I want to share those with you. And I started in last week's message. We'll talk about it tonight, and then after the uh, Christmas break there a little bit, when we have our candlelight service, we'll get back into it again. And we'll talk about why we need to praise God, uh, or give glory to God. Last week, we only had time to look at one of the reasons. Uh, The introduction to the text was sufficiently long that I didn't have much time to go into it in detail. And so we just looked at one of those reasons, and we're not going to have time to get to the rest of the ten tonight. So we're going to do like we did last time when... Uh, we'll, we'll talk about a few, and then we'll unhook this thing and come back at a later time and hook back up again and talk about the other reasons. So last week, I gave you reason number one, and that is that we glorify God because of the creation of the Father. And that's really not too complicated. Um, it's simply to glorify Him because without creation, none of us would be here. We wouldn't have the opportunity to uh, have anything to do with God at all because our existence is completely owed to God. We're not here because there there, there were a billion random chance happenings and all of a sudden one day a slug became a man. But rather we have been created for a particular purpose and God has created us to give him glory. That's the purpose that God uh, created all of mankind. And so God wants you to give him the glory. God didn't need us. God was not lonely. And contrary to what you read in the purpose-driven life, uh, Jesus did not love us so much that he couldn't live without us. And he gave his life because he just couldn't stand to be without us. That's not true at all. He created us for the purpose of glorifying him and magnifying him. So that's the first reason. That's just briefly what we talked about in the end of last week's sermon. And if you didn't get to hear all about that, then you can, of course, get one of the recordings and listen to it. So we're going to take up another reason tonight. Um, and this is reason number two, which we're to give glory to God because of the creatures of the Father. Reason number two is the creatures of the Father. We glorify Him because of the way that He regards us as His creatures. God has providential care over all of His creatures. Now, in our studies of the Sermon on the Mount, I pointed out that God has given us laws to live by, but God does not exclude Himself from His own law. When Jesus came into the world, he submitted himself to the laws of God. And by doing that, he proved the worthiness and the holiness of the law that God has given. But Jesus was willing to submit himself to God's law because God himself never acts contrary to the law. God has even uh, confined himself to his own law. In that second division of the law, uh, God tells us, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And as much as that law is binding upon us, God has chosen to bind himself to it. Now, we had much discussion uh, about Jesus' statement in Matthew 5:44, where he says there that we are to love our enemies and we are to do good to them that hate us. And God does no less because in verse number 45 of that same chapter, it tells us that God sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus said that you are to love your enemies because that is the character of God. And we see it in God's providential care over all, even 
over those who have set themselves against God. I mean, there are people that refuse the righteousness of God. The worst atheists on the planet ought to give glory to God because despite his rejection of him, God still supplies what he needs. He gives him the breath to breathe. He prospers him even though he is his enemy. Now, these are God's enemies. They persist to be God's enemies. But God does not withhold what they need for their lives. Now, what we call that uh, sometimes is God's common grace. That's the general care and general provision that he has for all of his creatures, even ones that are his enemies. So that is actually God bringing himself into conformity with his own law. Now, those of us that are saved, we may look at that and we would say, well, I wonder why God does this. Or we might say, well, I don't understand why, or I don't think that God should should do such a thing. Maybe God should withhold his common grace, because he certainly has no reason to give anybody anything who doesn't honor him and who would reject him. And yet, as we look at that, uh, we, we need to see that God intends that there is a lesson here to be learned by each of us. I mean, we have to look at our own unworthiness. There's no reason why God should have ever given us anything, that he should ever love us, that he should ever give us his mercy and his grace. But more importantly than that, God's providence is a sign that since he will do this to his enemies, how much more will he do for those who are the divine objects of his grace? The Bible says he doesn't withhold from the unjust, so how much would he do for those who are just? the ones who have been made righteous by the blood of Christ. And so that is a superlative. That's a reason that causes us to glorify God even more than before, because we know that God loves us so much more now being his children. Paul expresses this in a very interesting way, I think, in 1 Timothy. There he says, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Now, that is a confusing verse to many people because they try to draw universal atonement from this. And if you take universal atonement from this particular verse, you're going to end up with universal salvation. That's, that's the only logical conclusion. But the verse is not actually talking about personal salvation, at least the, the first part of it's not. The first part is talking about God's common grace. God is the Savior of all men in the sense that we read in Matthew 5.44, where it says he takes care of the just and of the unjust. Now, Paul's argument there is that God saves all men in that sense. But there's a greater sense in which he saves those that are his people. And that's what the second part is about, especially of those that believe. That shows us that there is a distinction between the first part of the verse and the second part of the verse. And it means that God goes beyond the common grace that is bestowed upon all of his creatures to a greater saving grace that he gives to those who are his own. Now there, the believer in Christ receives all of the common benefits that others receive, but God adds on top of that special care and the soul's salvation as well. And so that is a great privilege when we understand this, that, that God is our Father, and He goes beyond just being a Father to us in the sense of creation, but He goes on to be our Father in sense of relation. So He goes from creation to relation to those that are redeemed. Now, when we get to the uh, Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, and we begin to discuss that, that very first phrase, Our Father, which art in heaven, we'll see some more of this. And it's the very reason why that Jesus begins that model prayer with Our Father, rather than O God. 
it's because of the relationship. So being created by the Father, that's great. We, we uh, owe Him our existence. Being a creature of the Father, that is great. Uh, the common grace that God bestows upon all. But being a creature saved by the marvelous grace of Christ is far greater because He's a Father in relationship and He gives special benefits to His children. Well, we go on now and we look at then the third reason that we glorify God. And we glorify Him for the commission of the Father. The commission. Now, what am I speaking of when I'm talking about the commission? Well, of course, we have been commissioned by God. We've been commissioned according to His eternal plans and purposes. And that's what I was trying to point out in Philippians 4.13. There Paul says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And that means that Christ uses me for His purposes rather than that common misinterpretation that we use Christ for our purposes. So certainly we have been commissioned by God. And that is a great privilege to be used in his service. And, that, and that's what I was referring to uh, in the first part of the message when, when I was speaking about thanking God for the opportunities that we have to serve him. God has commissioned us for his purposes. But that's not really the consideration that I want to make here or, or relating it to discussing the commission in this particular place. But this commission that I think that we need to glorify God for is the commission of Christ. Now, I want you to turn to John chapter 17. And here, of course, is where we find the covenant that was made between the Father and the Son. And this is a particularly important text, and it's worth referring to often. And and you should know it, and hopefully you'll know it well. Uh, Glorify God for Christ's commission. And Jesus states that commission in John chapter 17. He begins with verse number 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said... Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now, there is the commission, the work that he's given to do. John Gill comments on these verses, and he says, By the work is meant obedience to the will of God, the destruction of all spiritual enemies as sin, Satan, the world, and death, and the redemption and salvation of his people, which was given him to do. He did not take it upon himself, but being called to it, he readily accepted of it. It was appointed and cut out for him in the counsel and covenant of grace. Now listen to that phrase. I love that. The counsel and the covenant of grace. And that is the eternal covenant that exists between the Father and the Son. It started out in eternity past, and it reaches all the way into eternity future. And that was a commission that was given long, long ago before the very first thing was ever created. You know, there's some people who think that God created the world and he put man into the world, and suddenly things went terribly wrong. That God had intended for man to live in the Garden of Eden forever, and so when Adam sinned, God sort of scratched his head, and he said, how did that happen? And so they had the idea that God had to go back to the drawing board, and he had to figure out, what am I going to do with this mess that Adam has created? So God went back to plan B, and this was that he would send Christ into the world to die for sin. But all of that is nothing but a plot of the devil to rob God of his sovereignty. 
I mean, such a scheme puts God's divine purposes dependent upon man rather than his own eternal purpose, and that makes man the sinner instead of God. And so we do get that question all the time. People ask that. Did God intend for Adam to sin in the garden? Did God put him in the uh, garden knowing what he would do? And further, did God intend for Adam to do what he did? And some of us are perplexed by that because if we're going to preach that God has ordained all things that come to pass, then we've got to do something or other with that problem of Adam's sin in the garden. Well, we might have a lot of trouble reconciling it in our mind as to what exactly happened, but the Bible is very clear about what happened. Now, in the Scriptures, uh, we have places that tell us in, in, uh, in, in uncertain terms that God certainly intended something to happen there. Now, I want to give you a few verses tonight, to, and, and the, these first ones I'll need to make the connections for you why I give them. But the psalmist wrote that in, this in Psalms 102, He says, of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Now, I wanted you to see there that foundation in that verse is obviously speaking of creation. And then we notice in Isaiah 40, verses 21 and 22, it says, Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Now, all of that is an expression of God's might and his power in creating the world. And he uses the term grasshopper here to the intent that we would see that God is so, or man is so far beneath God, and that we are really puny when it comes to God's side of us. Now, God then set all things in motion at the very beginning. That was at the foundation of the earth. And then we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. So I put all of those verses together mainly for this point to show you that foundation means creation. Now listen to the time that Christ has given his commission. We find it in that familiar verse in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, three verses here, 18 through 20, where it says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, that's silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So Christ's commission to go to the cross was given to him before the foundation of the world, foreordained before the foundation of the world. So before the very first thing was created, and of course that would mean before man was created, Christ was commissioned to go to the cross in order to redeem man. Now that means then that God must have created man with the intent that he would fall. Now, it should be evident to all of us that God could have changed things. He could have prevented the fall if he had so chosen to do. And then further, in Revelation 13, verse 8, it nails down this work of Christ, which includes his death. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life from the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So there we see Christ slain from the foundation of the world. Now, let me... uh, read to you Albert Barnes' comment on that part. He says, the meaning here is not that he was actually put to death, 
from the foundation of the world, but that the intention to give him for a sacrifice was formed then, and that it was so certain that it might be spoken of as actually then occurring. Now, you notice that? The intention is to give him as a sacrifice was formed then, and so certain that it could be spoken of as actually then occurring. Well, then it could be no less the intention of God in creating man and placing him into the garden and then allowing Satan to tempt him that Adam would fall. The Redeemer's commission was given before the creation, which was before the fall, which, of course, would make the fall of man inevitable. You don't need a Redeemer if there's not a fall. Now, that would then put those who deny the doctrines of election and predestination in a terrible conundrum because Christ's commission is given before the fall and the whole human race was plunged into sin because of that fall and yet only some of humanity would be saved by the commission. So you see that God could have designed this to save all if he had chosen to do that, but he didn't do that. And so that means that the number of people who would be saved was fixed from the foundation of the world. And then to say that God would not be selective uh, about whom he would save would be utter nonsense because we've already established that. The question has been put out of reach by Revelation 13.8 where it says the names are written in the book of the uh, Lamb from the foundation of the world. And so as specific as God was with Adam and what Adam would do, God is just as specific to all individuals who would be participants in his grace. Now, there are just too many scriptures throughout the Bible uh, that, that support that, that we simply can't deny it. Now, that brings me then back to the main point. We glorify God for Christ's commission. Because if God had permitted the fall without that commission, then all of mankind would have been hopelessly lost. But there must have been a reason why that God did this, because God certainly could have taken the opposite tack and done it for another reason. He could have, or he could have simply done away with the commission and never permitted the fall. Now, since God arranged all of this from the very beginning, his purpose in doing so must have been in order to bring the greatest glory to him. Now, if that is not the case, then God is manipulative just to be manipulative. And so, therefore, what do we have? Well, we have a maniacal God instead of of a providential, caring God. Well, the points that we've already made about God sending rain on the just and the unjust would prove to us that certainly God is not a maniacal God because he's holding himself to his own standard of law that he loves his enemies as well as those who are the the uh, recipients of his grace in a certain sense. So that would prove that he can't possibly be maniacal. So that would only leave us with one conclusion, and that is that God permitted the fall of man for his greater glory. And so we glorify him for his infinite wisdom in devising such a plan. Now, I hope you got all of that. But let's take that a step further, because not only that, we glorify him for the choice of the Father. Now, I I don't need to beat this horse to death because we've already spent an entire uh, sermon time a a week or so ago talking about the old names that are written down in glory. So let me give this to you in just a little bit different way. And that is we glorify God for his specific choice because some have been chosen to be the special objects of his grace. Some are chosen according to God's marvelous plan. Some were given to Christ. And that was very plainly stated when Jesus gave his commission or talked about his commission in John 17, 2. We read that just a moment ago. Now, how and why 
that God made such a choice is way beyond my pay grade. I can't tell you why he did that. All I know is in the election of God that he decided to do it, and all that I can do is fall down on my knees and thank God in glorious praise that he made me part of his choice. So I'm amazed sometimes that, well, I guess what I would call it uh, wholesale ignorance of some people who say that those of us who believe in God's electing grace are somehow arrogant because we say we've been elected by God. I mean, they say that we boast about this. But the person who really understands the doctrine has totally acquiesced to Paul's argument in Romans chapter 9. There is where he speaks about God's sovereign choice of Jacob and Esau. He says, For the children not being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Well, there is an election to be sure, because then, if not, then... What do the words mean? The purpose of God according to election might stand. What, what does that mean if there is no election? But we go further than that because it says not of works. Now, what does Paul say about works? Well, we're familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, by faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then Paul says in Romans three twenty seven, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Works? Nay, but by the law of faith. So we can never boast about our election because God gives us no basis for it. In fact, if you could squeeze out some means of boasting about election, then you would have to accept the reverse of the election in Romans chapter 11. And that was that Esau should have been chosen instead of Jacob. He was the firstborn, and his character was much better than Jacob's before Jacob was saved. Jacob was that sniveling, conniving mama's boy. He was a cheat. So we can't boast about our election because we never even knew about it until we were called by that secret work of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. It was above our comprehension. We didn't even know what was going on. And the only reason that our election is confirmed to us is because of our faith in Christ. Now, on the other hand, you look at those who deny election... And maybe I shouldn't say deny it because they don't actually deny election. They just put it in the wrong place. They'll say uh, one of two things possibly is that God elects people when they believe and, and that's the election or that God looked down through time and foresaw that people would believe and based upon what he foresaw, then he would choose them. Well, in that kind of a system, who has reason to boast? Because here you have a person who says, well, I'm saved my, by my decision. Here are all the facts. There is no effectual call by the Spirit, at least not a determinative one. And so here is my evaluation of the facts. I cast the deciding vote on whether I would be saved. And I, sadly to say, have heard that preached from this very pulpit some time ago, a long time ago, that uh, there's a, there's election boils down to this, that, that God votes for you and Satan votes against you, and you cast the deciding vote. Well, what do you have to... Who has reason to boast then? I mean, what I would say about that, you're the person who has reason to boast because thank God for your cooperation because Christ cannot save you without it. So which person has reason to boast? The one who's chosen by God to believe and God did all of the preparatory work. God secured it for us. Or the one who says, well, I had all the facts and so I believed in Christ and I chose Christ and then Christ chose me. Now, the fundamental problem 
and I choose that word carefully, is without God's sovereign choice, God must share his glory. You see, some of the glory goes to the sinner, and some of the glory goes to God. And I would submit to you that God is not going to share his glory with anyone. And the reason that salvation was determined from before the foundation of the world, and God chose those before the foundation of the world whom he would save, because salvation has been specifically designed that from no angle, not up, not down, not east, not west, not sideways, not diagonally, are you ever going to squeeze in a reason for man to say that I did something for my salvation. The spotlight cannot be shined upon man. Now, John wrote this. He said, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I could hardly imagine that Paul would say in Philippians 4.20, Now unto God and our Father and us be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, you see, it makes a big difference. I mean, people think, well, these kinds of doctrinal points are not so important, but they are extremely important because it tells us where salvation comes from. And to refuse to believe in God's election, simply as the Bible says it, is to degrade God's salvation because it puts more onus on us than ought to be there. Faith is given by God. The election is made by God. Uh, the regeneration is done by God. The justifying, sanctifying, glorifying is all by God. And it can only come to pass that way when God is in control of the entire process. You leave anything to man and God shares, or man shares the glory with God. Now, the things that we've talked about thus far, about giving glory to God, mainly have occurred before we were ever born. Creation was before I got here. Uh, God's providence over his creatures and writing in the law and giving it to Moses that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And then God binding himself to his own law. That's way before my time. The commission of Christ was in eternity past. I wasn't here. And I was certainly contemplated in that. God knew me and knew you if you are a believer in Christ. And Christ was commissioned to save us. That was before my time. The choice of God the Father in saving me was before my time. So I glorify God because God is the one who's worked all of that out for me. He didn't ask me. He didn't phone me up. He didn't ask me for an opinion. And he didn't ask me for a decision. He just put it all into place because he knew I could never do it for myself. Now, the very first reason ought to show us that God is everything. Creation shows us that God is everything. We owe all of our existence to him. So how am I ever going to turn that around and make this my world and not God's? So the first four reasons that we have to glorify God concern things that are outside my realm of being and your realm of being. Now when we get to the, the last six reasons that we'll talk about, we're going to come back and talk about those, but those are reasons to glorify God Certainly, for sure, but we emphasize this in a different way because now we can glorify God based upon all of these things that have happened in the past. And now then, having been saved by him, we have a relationship with him, and now he is our father. And once he has become our father, then this gets very, very much more personal to us because these are things that we feel within us and things that we can do in response to what God has done. 
our election and the regeneration and all these things that occurred in the commission of Christ, that's all beyond us, outside of us. But once he becomes our father and we have that relationship, then we get that personal effect or personal feeling of effect from it in a different way. And so we're going to talk about those last six reasons as we go along, reasons why we glorify God the Father. And so Paul says there in that verse, Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. There are so many reasons to glorify God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity you've given us to come and discuss your word tonight. And Lord, we we lift up your name, we magnify you, because we are nothing without you. Our creation, being your creatures, the commission that was given to Christ, our choice before the foundation of the world, that's all found in you. And we glorify and honor your name for it. And we can very easily see how that Paul would break out in praise when he contemplates such weighty subjects as this, these, even as he did in Romans chapter 11, where he talks about the depths of the riches and the knowledge of God. The, the, your ways are past finding out. Lord, we just thank you for the great God that you are, and we praise your name. We glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.